0: Have you noticed that so much comes in fours? Have you noticed this? East, west, north, and south. Summer, fall, winter, and spring. Right, left, up, and down. Meat, milk, fruit, and vegetables. Diamonds, hearts, clubs, and spades. Addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division. Earth, wind, fire, and water? How about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Even Paul, John, George, and Ringo? For Kathy and I, it's Zach, Nat, Nick, and Mac. And of course, every year at the end of March, college basketball sort of wraps up its season by showcasing its four hottest teams In a playoff for the national title. Championship weekend is called the Final Four. And in a sense, this is what Paul does in these closing verses of Ephesians. He summarizes his whole letter with a final four peace, love, faith, and grace. You see, all the Christian life can be summed up by these final four blessings. I've entitled this morning's message, The Final Four, or perhaps a better title, The Fab Four. Paul reminds us of God's peace and love, of our faith and of God's grace. But first he speaks of the man who delivered his letter. He mentions his buddy, Tychicus, in chapter 6, verse 21, and there's where we'll begin reading. But that which you also may know my affairs and how I am doing, Tychicus A beloved brother and a faithful minister in the Lord will make all these things known to you, whom I have sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs and that he may comfort your hearts. Now it was customary for the Apostle Paul to dictate his letters to a penman, to a stenographer. But when he had finished the main body of his message, he would take the quill in hand. And he would write his closing comments himself. And this is what he does here. And the first thing he writes about is the man who has been writing for him. Tychicus was one of Paul's most trusted allies. He was probably Paul's penman. Almost certainly he was Paul's postman. He delivered this letter from Rome to Ephesus and along with it brought news from Paul. On the same journey, Tychicus delivered the letters to Colossi and Philemon. He may have actually been from Ephesus. Here he's referred to as a beloved brother. It's possible he was converted by Paul's witness. Certainly, Paul had few friends more loyal than Tychicus. He accompanied Paul on his last trip to Jerusalem, where you remember Paul was arrested by the Jews. He then stayed with Paul for the two years he was in prison in Caesarea, and Tychicus eventually sailed with Paul to Rome. Some scholars speculate that Tychicus was so devoted to Paul that he volunteered to be Paul's slave. In the Roman Empire, the only persons allowed to officially travel with a prisoner were his slaves, and it's just interesting to contemplate Tychicus may have forfeited his own personal freedoms to assist Paul in his ministry. Tychicus was certainly a behind-the-scenes saint. Luke never records him working a miracle or even preaching a sermon. Paul was the out-front guy, the one leading the charge. Tychicus was a loyal assistant. His main activity was running errands for Paul. In verse 21, Paul here refers to him not only as a beloved brother, but as a faithful minister. The Greek term, Therefore, minister is diaconus or deacon, which means servant. Perhaps Tychicus served the church in the official office of a deacon. Whether he did or not, we're not sure. But we do know that Paul's friend definitely had a servant's heart. In 2010, the San Francisco Giants won baseball's World Series. And it was a big deal. First time in 52 years. Think of all of the baseball greats who played ball on the bay, the Willies, Mays and McCovey, the Bonds, Bobby and Barry, Juan Marichal and Orlando Cepeda and Felipe Lou, and Will Clark, even Tim Linsencom. But it wasn't a star who delivered the World Series trophy to the players in the locker room there in Arlington, Texas. It wasn't a star who got the honor. It was their longtime equipment manager. Mike Murphy has cleaned spikes and mended pants and ordered bats and rubbed up baseballs for the Giants since 1958. Murph was there not only in the good times, but in the bad times as well. After the World Series win, General Manager Brian Sabian remarked When I saw him on the field afterward, I got teary eyed. Murph is as important to this organization as anyone. He makes players feel comfortable in a family way, and that should not be overlooked. Murphy was allowed the honor of handing over the World Series trophy to the Giants. And after delivering the celebrated trophy to the celebrating players, Murph turned to a clubhouse attendant and pointed to some equipment bags that needed to be loaded onto a truck and said, Get to work. And just like that, still drenched with champagne. Mike Murphy was back to being a servant. No wonder he has a name plaque that sits on his desk that reads, Mike Murphy, character builder. It is a special man, a special woman, who can find their success in the shadow of another person. Yet this was Tychicus. We would call him a support person or an assistant, but there is little doubt. Paul would not have been the man he was without the loyal support of Tychicus and other such assistants like Timothy and Titus. You see, to get the full picture of the role that Tychicus played in the apostles' life, recall 2 Corinthians chapter 11. There Paul itemizes his trials, the difficulties that he had endured over his lifetime. He says, "...in journeys often, in perils often, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city." In perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Now, you need to remember that Tychicus was with Paul and shared in many of these perils. You see, Paul and Tychicus were more than just casual acquaintances or even close friends. They occupied the same foxhole. They were more like army buddies. The trials that they had endured bonded their hearts for life. It reminds me of the Lone Ranger and his sidekick, Tonto. You know, our BBS is all about favorite uh, friendships of the Bible. Well, the Lone Ranger and Tonto were one of television's greatest friendships. Think of all of the scrapes and the near misses and the harrowing experiences they overcame together. I mean, every afternoon. That's why Tonto had a special name he used for the Lone Ranger. You remember what he called him? Kimasabi, which means faithful friend. This describes the relationship between Paul and his sidekick Tychicus. They were Kemosabes in Christ. Hey, let me encourage you. If you've been blessed with such a friendship, please don't neglect it. Certainly don't take it for granted. Nothing is more valuable than a true kimosabi. You know, some people go their whole life long without experiencing this kind of friendship. That's why it amazes me how easily folks who are blessed to find such a relationship will jeopardize it by prioritizing other interests. Oh, they'll relocate at the drop of a hat or get distracted by some hobby, or clam up, or let little things cause a split. Then one day they wake up, and the friendship they once valued isn't what it used to be, or could have been. Listen to the quote from one older man, at the nearing the end of his life, he writes, "'What counts most as I look back over the years are not my accomplishments, but rather the friends who worked with me as partners in these accomplishments.'" The funny thing about it all is that the quality and quantity of those accomplishments are now fuzzy and unimportant in my mind while the friendships remain crystal clear in my memory. You see, a true friendship requires great effort. Real friends don't just drop in your lap. They have to be developed. I love the description offered by actress Susan St. James. She writes this, Friendship is like putting on pantyhose. You have to get one foot in and then the other and wiggle around and tug until, it get, until you get it right. And then pretty soon you say, I love these pantyhose. They fit. That sort of give and take occurred between Paul and Tychicus. You know, they had to invest in each other's lives. They had to work out their problems. They had to work on their friendship. You see, you don't endure the hardships they were forced to face without making an investment in each other and a commitment to each other. Through all that they experienced, they forged a friendship. To me, it's no accident that Paul mentions his friend Tychicus after his thoughts on spiritual warfare. All the battles that they had fought together, the attacks they had endured together, the wounds they had suffered together, the victories they had won together, this all cemented their friendship. This is why if you don't have a kimasabi in Christ, a really committed Christian friend, I've got to ask you, have you gotten involved in your church? Have you jumped into a foxhole? Have you prayed next to someone and for someone? Or have you been sitting at home afraid to enlist, content to let others fight the spiritual battles for you? See, Paul knew that true friends have to be cultivated I mean, why do you think Paul is sending this letter to the Ephesians? He loved this church, and he wanted to see his friends grow and abound in God's blessings. In Paul's day, writing was painstaking. Parchment was costly. Delivery was by foot. And yet Paul saw the advantage, and he made the effort to stay in touch. He writes them this letter. Remember the old jingle, I went out to find a friend, But could not find one there. I went out to be a friend, and friends were everywhere. Paul wrote an actual letter with paper and ink to cultivate a friendship. The least we can do is send an email or shoot a text. What old friend or potential new friend is God laying on your heart today, prompting you to make contact? Don't lowball the value of kemosabis in Christ. Which brings us to verse 23, the fab four. Here's Paul's final four, peace, love, faith, and grace. Peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. Now, Paul is praying a fourfold blessing on these Ephesians. He's praying for gifts that he wants his friends to possess. Bible commentator Alexander McLaren wrote of this passage, There is no better test of a man than the things he wishes for the people he loves the most. He desires for them his own ideal of happiness. What do you desire most for those that are dearest to you? It's true. What I desire for others reveals my own priorities. My own idea of what glory and riches and happiness consist of. I mean, if an angel came to you tomorrow and granted you one wish for your family and friends, what would it be? Would it be fame, success, money, love, happiness? Would your wish be material or spiritual in nature? Well, Paul wants his friends in Ephesus to possess spiritual wealth. And he has four blessings in mind, peace and love and faith and grace. First, he mentions peace, peace to the brethren. I remember reading years ago of an elderly couple who were set to retire. It was at the height of the Cold War and they were concerned about the nuclear threat. And so before moving, they studied all the regions of the world to find the place that was most likely to avoid war. Finally, they decided on the Falkland Islands, just off the coast of Argentina. They moved in late 1981, a few months before this isolated island became a battleground between Great Britain and Argentina. It proves there is nowhere you can run from hostility. For years, Atlantans have been moving to crime-free Lake Oconee where a few months ago they found a man decapitated in his garage in his wife's murdered body floating in the lake. The killer's still on the loose. My point is, is there no place on earth where you can escape the consequences of sin? Realize the only real peace we can confidently count on is the peace that Jesus brings. The Bible refers to Jesus as the Prince of Peace. The reason there's friction on the horizontal plane between man and his fellow man is because of the friction that sees on the vertical plane between man and God. Human beings fight each other on the outside because we fight against God on the inside. Ravi Zacharias was one of a group of Christian leaders who traveled to the Middle East to meet with members of Hamas, the pro-Palestinian Islamic terrorist group who has vowed the destruction of Israel. The Christians were on a peace mission. They were trying to reason Israelis and Hamas to the peace table. Their group was having dinner with a founder of Hamas, Sheikh Talal. He spoke of his imprisonment and that he had lost his children through suicide bombings. When Ravi spoke, he asked about the Sheikh's thoughts on using his children as suicide bombers. Well, after the man answered, Ravi Zacharias continued. He said, Sheikh. You and I may never see each other again after tonight, so I want you to hear me. A little distance from here is a mountain on which Abraham went 5,000 years ago to offer his son. And as the axe began to fall, God said, stop, I myself will provide. The sheik nodded his head in agreement. Ravi continued his reasoning. He said, in a very clo- and very close to where we're sitting, sheik, there is a hill. 2,000 years ago, God kept that promise and brought his own son. And the axe did not stop this time. He sacrificed his own son. And until you and I receive the son God provided, we will be offering our own sons and daughters on the battlefields of this world for land and power and pride. Rabbi Zacharias said that as he spoke, the sheikh's lips started quivering. No one said a word after he'd finished, but as they left, this man kissed Ravi on both cheeks and said to him, I hope to see you again someday. But for that day, Ravi Zacharias had made his point. Until our hatred for each other is replaced with God's love and grace, we'll never be able to forgive one another and live in this world in peace. War will continue. We'll sacrifice our own sons on the altar of prejudice and pride because we fail to humble ourselves and accept the Son of God who was sacrificed for us. This is the point Paul made earlier in Ephesians chapter 2. In chapter 2, verse 14, he wrote of Jesus that he has broken down that wall of separation between people groups by reconciling us to God. Paul said, Jesus himself is our peace. That means that when you embrace Jesus, and when I embrace Jesus, we embrace each other in a very real way. He is the commonality that transcends our differences. And this is how Jesus brings together Arabs and Jews and blacks and whites and women and men and young and old and husbands and wives and parents and children and brothers and brothers. He really does offer us a supranatural peace. For some people, when they give their life to Jesus, they're freed instantly from cigarettes or even from cocaine. For me, I experienced a different kind of deliverance. 36 years ago, I gave my life to Jesus. I became brand new inside. And from that moment onward, all of the bigotry I had ever held in my heart for people different from me disappeared. It was gone. I was liberated, free to love. God's love took over my life. From that moment on, I have seen people differently. And it was miraculous, every bit as much as if I'd been free from alcohol. You see, this is the peace that Jesus promises us in John 14, verse 27. Peace I leave with you, Jesus said. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. I mean, the treaties negotiated by this world are only ceasefires. They end the hostilities long enough for both sides to reload. Human contrived peace is temporary and superficial. It sends the fighters back to their corners until the next round. But it doesn't give them a reason to be friends. Whereas the peace that Jesus brings buries the hatchet once and for all. His cross resolves the conflict. In fact, the peace of God runs deep. It runs so deep. It's not dependent on an outward truce or a situational calm. It's spiritual and inward. God's peace transcends our circumstances. Think of a violent storm at sea. The winds and the waves are churning on the surface of the water. Anything caught in the whitecaps is in for a wild, tumultuous ride. But now dive deep. Go deep to the ocean floor, and you'll find a world undisturbed by the turmoil on the surface. And this is the secret of God's peace. Don't look for peace in the midst of circumstances. No, go deep with Jesus dive into the sea of God's love and you'll find a secret place of calm and composure. If you want God's peace, the answer is depth. Author Kent Hughes writes, for those who have not experienced this peace, no words will suffice. For those who have experienced it, no words will quite do. This kind of miracle peace is a blessing from God and it's Paul's desire that it be granted to these Ephesians, as well as love. He says, peace to the brethren and love from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Fourteen times in in Ephesians, Paul mentions the word love, for love is the key ingredient in the Christian life. You know, when Jesus was asked to identify the greatest of the commandments, he gave them two. He said, love God with all you've got, and love your neighbor as yourself. So much is contingent on our loving God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love Him. There's great blessings in store for those who love God. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that we can speak with tongues and move mountains and give all our money away to feed the poor. But without love, we ain't nothing. It's been said when God measures us, he doesn't wrap the tape around our minds or our muscles, but our heart. It's so important that we love God. And yet so often it's like keeping a flame alive on a windy day. There's so many strong winds that would want to blow in and snuff out that love. You realize it's the tendency of all love to grow cold. Someone once asked, what's so remarkable about love at first sight? It's when people have been looking at each other for 50 years that it becomes remarkable. It's true, isn't it? Love has a way of growing stale and stagnant, even in our relationship with God. Notice Paul's statement here in verse 24. Recipients of God's love are those who love Him sincerely. Their love is untainted by hypocrisy. See, God doesn't expect us to be perfect or spotless. The psalmist says that God knows our frame, that we're but dust. And yet the one thing that God does expect is sincerity. Often when I officiate a wedding, I tell the couple, none of us expect you to be perfect. We all know you. We know better. But we do expect you to be faithful. And this is also true in our love for God, that we remain loyal to God. You see, in the halls of heaven, you'll find gold and silver and pearls. But the one thing you won't find, you won't find anything plastic or phony. We're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that all Christians will pass before the judgment seat of Christ. Not to determine our salvation. It's not our faith that's being tested here. It's our works. The good deeds done for Jesus, were they done out of love? Or of selfish, egotistical reasons? Was our motivation pure? Were we sincere? You know, there are actually two letters in the New Testament to the Ephesians. No, you won't find first and second Ephesians. You have to go to Revelation chapter 2 to find the second letter to the Ephesians. It was written not by Paul, but by Jesus. One of Jesus' seven letters to the churches was to the church at Ephesus. And you remember what he told them. They had left their first love. Their love was no longer fresh and warm and sincere. It had chilled. It was growing cold. And in Revelation 2, the church at Ephesus, though it had a full docket of service, they were going through the motions without the devotion. And it was time for them to repent, to fan the flame of their love, to recall their initial responses to Jesus. It was time for them to return to their first love. They needed to prioritize the Lord's love for them. See, if you want to avoid a love that grows cold, if your desire is to sustain a passionate, sincere love for Jesus, then here's an important verse for you to remember. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. We love Him because He first loved us. I mean, what came first? God's love for you or your love for Him? Of course, His love for you. It's... It's Our our love for God is fueled by our understanding of His love for us. This is why we're told in Jude 21, keep yourself in the love of God. It's our understanding and focus on God's love for us that keeps our love for Him alive. Paul said the same thing in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 14. For the love of Christ compels us. His love is the compelling and appealing and attractive force. It's our great motivator. God's love for me is the internal combustion of the Christian life. It's His love for me that stokes my love for Him. What's the key to me loving God? It's by me keeping myself in God's love, trusting and resting and learning of God's great love for me. Sir Isaac Watts wrote this of God's love. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. When you know how much God loves you, you'll want to love him in return. Samuel Rutherford put it, Christ's love is the hottest coal that ever I felt. Oh, but the smoke of it be hot. Cast all the salt sea on it, it will flame. Hell cannot quench it. Many, many waters will not quench his love. God's love is an eternal flame. That's why the key to keeping your torch lit is to keep dipping it into his flame god's love for us is what stirs up our love for god his love is a blessing we can't live without and so is faith verse 23 tells us peace to the brethren and love with faith love with faith that's a powerful combination the assurance of god's love not only fuels my love for god but my faith in him as well Think of it, love and trust go together. Often we love a person because we trust them. And we trust that person because we love them. Love and trust go hand in hand. One thing is for sure, without trust, our love won't last for long. Once there was a downtown high rise that caught fire. And of course the crowd all gathered around to watch it burn. But the people were horrified when they saw a little girl standing in the windowsill. Smoke was billowing out from behind her. To make matters worse, the young girl was blind. The flames were getting hotter and hotter, but the firemen were unable to position the ladders close enough for her to grasp, and so as they called for her to jump. These were skilled firemen who were trained to catch folks in the canvas. But the firemen couldn't talk the little girl into jumping. That is, until her daddy arrived. When the dad got on the bullhorn and told his daughter to jump, She immediately leaped from the ledge as if she were leaping into her daddy's arms. The girl was so relaxed, she avoided even some of the minor injuries that often occur. She trusted her father's voice because she knew he loved her. As I said, love with faith is a powerful team. The more you know that God loves you, the more relaxed you'll be when he calls on you to jump. Faith is more than just agreeing on certain facts about God. It's more than just an intellectual nod to God. Biblical faith is trusting in God's promises, so much so that I'm willing to act on their reliability. Real faith is staking my future on God's promises. Once upon a time, three men, a philosopher, a scientist, and a beggar were stranded in a cave just above the ocean, They were surrounded by a rock wall. The tide was rising. They were about to drown. Just in time, the rescuers dropped down the rope from above. The philosopher saw the rope, and he examined it, and he said, Ah, that looks like a rope, but I might be mistaken. It could be an illusion, a wishful thinking. And so in his confounded intellectualism, he refused to grab the rope, and he drowned. The scientist also saw the rope. This is an 11-millimeter polyester rope with a breaking strain of 2,800 kilograms. It conforms to the MR-1081 standard. And then he gave exhaustive analysis of the rope's chemical properties. He had it all analyzed, but neither did he grab the rope, and he drowned. And yet the beggar, he had a different approach. He says, I'm not sure if that's a rope or a python's tail, but it's my only hope, so I'm holding on for dear life. And because he did, it gave the rescuers a way to save his life. And this is saving faith. It's not understanding all there is to know about God. It's not understanding all the intricacies of God's existence or his methodologies or even his nature. Who can know all there is to know about God to begin with? It's recognizing, real faith is recognizing the love of God enough to grab on and hold on to his great promises. Faith is hope with a grip. It's grabbing onto God. Faith is the like pine tar. You know, faith is to, a, uh, to us like pine tar is to a baseball player. He takes that pine tar and he smears it on the handle of his bat. Why? To enhance his grip. And just as pine tar helps him, holding, helps him to hold on during his swing, faith helps us. When it's our time in the batter's box of life, when it's our opportunity to take a big swing at life, you need to apply the spiritual stickum that we call faith. Don't you think you'll be more successful with a stronger faith so that you can hold on to the promises of God? Well, finally, in verse 24, Paul mentions grace. Peace and love and faith and now grace. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ. Recall Paul introduced this letter to the Ephesians in chapter 1 verse 2 with a greeting of grace and peace. Grace was his first word to them. Now grace is his last word to them as well. This term translated grace is a Greek word, charis, from which we get our English word charisma. And it has two meanings here. Grace refers to spiritual endowment, but it also refers to spiritual empowerment. Here's another way to say it. Grace is judicial, and it's also effectual. On the one hand, grace is judicial. I mean, grace is God tinkering with the heavenly ledgers. He's blotting out our sin, and He's crediting us with a righteousness that we could never earn. You could say God cooks the books in our favor. He does. But all this tinkering is done legally since it's based on the work of His Son, the price Jesus paid for us. For Jesus' sake, the judge issues a ruling in our favor. This is the grace that Paul wrote about in Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, it is an endowment. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. It's a free gift. There's nothing we can do to earn or merit God's God's favor. Billy Graham once said of grace, "It cannot be sought, bought, or wrought. It was purchased on the cross." Reminds me of a story from the Spanish-American War. Teddy Roosevelt and his Rough Riders they desperately needed supplies. Roosevelt asked Claire Barton of Red Cross fame if he could purchase some supplies. When she denied his request, Roosevelt became furious. He asked, well, how then do I get supplies? That's when Claire Barton replied, Colonel, just ask. Just ask. What he needed couldn't be purchased. It could only be received freely. And this is why I say grace is an endowment given to us by God. When we humble ourselves and admit our need and just ask. But grace is more. For it is also an empowerment. For grace doesn't just alter the heavenly ledgers. It alters me. It has an actual, tangible impact on my life. In Ephesians 4, verse 7, Paul speaks of grace this way. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then he discusses our place in Christ and our purpose for Christ and the power of Christ. Christ. This is also how Paul defines grace in Ephesians 2, verse 10. For after he speaks of grace as an endowment given by God freely, in the very next verse he describes the impact that endowment has upon our everyday lives. He says, for we are his workmanship, his poema, his work of art, created in Christ Jesus for good works. It's not only judicial, it's effectual, has an effect on us. Grace doesn't just tinker with the heavenly ledgers. It pulls me off the ledge and gives me a reason to live. God's grace impacts my life. It sucks me into its web. It drives me to greater love for God and works for God. Hear Paul speak to the Corinthians. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I but the grace of God which was with me. It was God's grace that made Paul the spiritual giant that he became. And in his mind, there was no room for boasting here. It was Christ who had worked for him and in him and now through him. You know, it's ironic. It's grace that puts all of God's blessings into the palms of our hands. But then it's grace that keeps our hands from trying to grab hold of the glory. That all God's blessings are given by grace assures that all God's blessings are the praise of God's glory. Well, there it is, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, a letter bubbling over with blessings, filled to the brim with peace and love and faith and grace. These are Paul's final four thoughts, and may they be the top four priorities in our lives even toward the people we love, I pray this morning that God would grant you His wonderful peace, His incredible love, a greater faith, and His glorious grace.